We're going to read from Matthew chapter 5, from verses 1 down to verse 12. We're continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount as we come to part 6. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. We come in our journey through our little series entitled Faithful Flourishing to verses 9 through to 12 of Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God, and blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I want to remind you before I say anything about these particular Beatitudes that they sit within the others as a, as a unit one of the ways in which you can tell that they are um, bookended together is that the first beatitude and the last beatitude both end with the same promise, that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And uh, this holds these eight beatitudes together as a kind of um, shelf of spiritual life, if you like, that begins with our acknowledgement of our own brokenness and our shame and journeys all the way through to the promise of God's kingdom, no matter what happens. In that journey, if you take a moment with me just to remind you of it, the eight steps are um, relatively straightforward, and they're helpful in remembering the order in which the Beatitudes appear. So the first Beatitude is Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. When we make an acknowledgement of our own weaknesses and our frailty, the possibility of heaven and eternal life opens up to us. That is, if you like, um, step one in our spiritual journey. We recognize our own limitations, our own brokenness, and our feeling. The second step is that we mourn for that. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And as we mourn, God meets with us and uh, comforts us and gives us a deep sense of hope and longing in our hearts for all that he wants. As a result of that morning, we, we sense that we need somebody else's power. We are aware of God at work in us. That is meekness. 
And when we enter into that sense of meekness, we are able to enter into a sense of receiving all that God wants to give us. That meekness creates in us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. And as we hunger and thirst for righteousness, that is, if you like, the fourth step of this spiritual journey that is described here in the Beatitudes. Having experienced God's mercy and God's grace and God's compassion and God's filling, the very thing that we want to do is be merciful to other people. And as we show mercy to others, uh, we experience something of the mercy of God back toward us. That leads us into this sense of a deep and profound awareness of the need of the holiness of God in our hearts to be pure in heart, which is the next step, the sixth step, if you like. The seventh step is that we long for other people, the one that we'll look at today in different detail. We long for other people to come into living relationship with God. We become peacemakers. Most of you that have become Christians will have experienced this in your own lives, particularly if you became an, a Christian as a, a teenager or as an older person or as an adult. When you become a follower of Jesus, you long for other people to become followers of Jesus. You have a deep hunger, yearning, desire that others might be made right with God, that they might make their peace with God, and you become a peacemaker. The promise that goes with that beatitude is that we will be described, whether we are men or women, as sons of God. That's a, a beautiful, powerful, dignifying, and, 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 and roiling promise that we'll look at in a moment. But of course, the difficulty is, in a world that is hostile to God and hostile to the gospel, when you become a peacemaker, when you want people to be made right with God, the world will attack you. It will ridicule you. It will diminish you. It will um, uh, tell you that you're irrelevant. It will do everything that it can to stop you, and you will be persecuted. That's the final beatitude. When we live as gospel people, I don't know why we think the world will applaud us. They never will. It's never, I've never really understood a theology that suggests that when you live as a person who is faithful to Christ, when you live His way, when you try to speak His truth, when you try to show His compassion and His grace and His mercy, I've never understood why we would think that everybody in society would say, I'm so glad you're doing that, Pip. I'm so glad that you're speaking out the truth. I'm so glad that you're talking about sin and righteousness and judgment to come. I'm so glad that you're talking about God's grace and mercy and compassion on the cross. Of course they won't. Instead, when we start to live as gospel people, the world will take notice, but many in our world, many in our society will attack us, will ridicule us, and will try to diminish us. That shouldn't stop us. And we shouldn't be surprised by it. I find it challenging that nowhere in my Bible do I read anywhere that the Christian life is an easy one. I post a little thing every night called Night Blessings, and I, I love to watch people's responses to it. The other night, I posted one um, that talked about it, when life is difficult, it's okay just to be okay. It's okay just to kind of make it through to the end of the day and feel that was an ordinary day and I managed. It's okay sometimes to feel a bit disappointed with your day. It's okay sometimes to feel as if, you know, you may not have achieved everything that you wanted, but you can go to bed, you made it through, you're all right. 
Somebody posted on it, and I, I love reading some of the comments. No Christian should ever be disappointed about anything. And I thought, well, great. <laughs> because that just builds my spirit so much. The reality is that our lives are lives that are complex and challenging and difficult, and not everything goes well. And sometimes it's just hard to keep this Christian life going. And we need to be reminded that in those moments of challenge and difficulty, when we feel as if we've just about made it, we can rejoice that we've got to the end of the day. Amen. I want to focus in on these few verses that we're looking at this morning. Peacemaking, verse 9, and those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, which is in some ways repeated in verses 10 and 11 and the promise of verse 12. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? That word in Greek only appears twice in the Bible. It appears here, and it appears in Acts chapter 26, verse 6. But you will not, most of you will not notice it in your English translations if you want to just pop through to Acts chapter 26, verse 6. Irenopoios is the Greek word, if you're taking notes, and it means people of peace, people of hope, people of wellness, people of the Hebrew idea, shalom. To be a peacemaker is to be a person whose life seeks to bring other people into right relationship with God and with each other. In Acts chapter 26, verse 6, And now I stand here on trial on account of my hope in the promise made by God to our ancestors. Where does the word peacemaker come in there? Well, you will be surprised to notice that the word to that follows the word God here is actually the word peacemaker. And if you read it carefully, you'll understand why it is so important. And now I stand here on trial on account of my hope and the promise made by God, the ultimate peacemaker, to our ancestors. You hear that idea, although it's theologically um, perhaps a little bit for some of you hidden in that verse. You hear it in verses like this from Paul's letter to the Romans. Whilst I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Or, herein the love of God from John is demonstrated to us. Not that we loved God, but that he first loved us. A peacemaker is a person who initiates an act of reconciliation, who will step into a situation of conflict in order to bring reconnection or reconciliation. With God, first of all, which is why it's in this beatitude, but also with one another. It is not the same in any way 
as peacekeeping. Peacekeeping runs away from conflict. Peacemakers recognize that they can't avoid it. I don't like conflict. I don't like disagreement. I don't like tension. I don't like arguments. I try to avoid them. I like people to get along. I like to go with the flow. I like it to be a whole happy, never having to face any challenges kind of life. But when you're called to be a Christian, you're called to recognize that that isn't how life is. The desire to keep peace isn't a bad thing. But the fear of being a peacemaker and opting instead to be a peacekeeper is not such a good thing. Peacemakers and peacekeepers are not the same thing. A peacemaker is someone who's willing to resolve both their outer and their inner turmoil in order to establish peace with themselves, with God, and with others. And therefore, to be a peacemaker involves addressing conflict. It involves stepping into tension to try and bring it to a place of resolution. A peacekeeper will avoid conflict. A peacemaker knows that they can't. That's true in a family. That's true in a marriage. It's true in a work situation. It's true when you're bringing up kids and every parent in the building said, Amen. It's true as a child when you're having to cope with your parents and every child in the room said, Double Amen. Peacemaking is difficult. It is challenging. Peacekeepers try to give in to tension. They try to steer clear of disagreement. They're the type of people who say, no, 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 no. Let's not talk about it. Let's not have a conversation. They hate rocking the boat. Therefore, they'll let their inner life become very tumultuous in order to try and keep a, a veneer of peace on the outside. That's not healthy. To be a peacemaker on the other side is to say our inner and our outer lives need to be held together. And when there are issues, we need to address them. How do we do it? Well, we follow the Prince of Peace, and it's worth remembering that. Jesus is our great example. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 gives him the name Prince of Peace. And what is that role that he fulfills? He is the ultimate mediator between God and people. He is the one that deals with conflict. He's the one that brings a resolution, that brings us a sense of hope. Yet, from the outside looking in, Jesus' life was anything but peaceful. He was constantly engaged in conflict, constantly criticized. He constantly challenged religious leaders about their beliefs. He constantly confronted sin. He questioned his disciples. He preached despite persecution. He lived through tensions and uneasinesses and difficult questions and accusations and disagreements. His disciples couldn't agree with one another, always trying to get one up on one another. James and John wanted to pull fire down from heaven. And yet Jesus was able to be a peacemaker, to set people free to show them the way, to help them to live in lasting inner and outer peace. Jesus' version of living a life of peace looks drastically different from the life of peace that we describe today. 
because he doesn't run away. If you want to be a peacemaker, sister or brother, then you cannot do it by avoiding honesty. You can't do it by avoiding conflict. And you can't do it by avoiding tense situations. There's a modern myth that conflict is bad for us. It isn't badly managed conflict is bad for us. But well-managed conflict is good for us. Talking things through, listening to each other's point of view, accepting that you might be wrong, being careful to pay attention to the person in front of you. These are important things. I don't have time to go into this in great detail this morning, but I want to give you three simple uh, suggestions around how peacemaking can help us and how you can employ it. Number one, honesty will breed harmony more than papering over cracks will. Learning to be honest with each other, learning to talk things through, learning to be clear and to be open about those areas where you are in disagreement with your husband, with your wife, with your children, with your colleagues, wherever you might find yourself is really important. Disagreement always brings a risk of vulnerability, but it's always important to remember that if our peace is built on lies or built on wrong assumptions, then it will not last. It'll crack under pressure. Learn to be honest without being hurtful. Learn to tell the truth. Learn to live in the truth. Learn to allow honesty to shape who you are. Secondly, and very simply, disagreement doesn't need to equal disrespect. I am convinced, convinced that in the age in which we live, where politicians disagree, where authorities disagree, where everybody disagrees with everybody, one of the greatest gifts that we can give the world as the church of Jesus Christ is that we can learn how to disagree well. We can learn to show the world around us that to disagree doesn't mean that you have to hate. It doesn't mean that you have to disrespect. It doesn't mean that you have to belittle or you have to mock, or you have to ridicule somebody else. Hmm. Maybe there's something about the Northern Ireland nature that we are known around the world as people who can argue about anything. I've told you before about the story of the, the guy from Northern Ireland who, during the potato famine, got on a boat and went to America to start a new life. And he got off the boat in New York at Ellis Island, and he walked up to the first person that he met, and he said, is there a government in this country? And the man that was talking to him said, yes. He said, good, I'm against it. We need to be careful that we don't carry that mentality into our lives, that our default is to be against something. That's not a healthy trait. Having lived out of Northern Ireland and in Northern Ireland and loving this country with all of my heart, I think perhaps one of our greatest weaknesses is we can be very, very dogmatic. We can get very angry very quickly. I remember sitting at our kitchen table in leafy Buckinghamshire with our four children having the most wonderful conversation about philosophy uh, because we're, they were all studying philosophy in one way or another. And I don't know what your kitchen table is like, but our kitchen table isn't quiet. When our kids were growing up, there were times, we had four under five and a half. Um, there were times when our kids were growing up that we would have to literally say to them, just hold your tongue. And they'd have to stick their tongue out and hold it. 
so that we could have a bit of silence. But they were all grown up, they were all teenagers, and we were having a really healthy conversation about a philosophy. My colleague James um, Simmons, who has been to Dundonald a couple of times, came to the door, and he says he knocked it several times. We didn't hear him. We were talking. And uh, eventually, he came into our kitchen, and one was ranting, and the other was ranting, and we were, you know, making our point forcibly, as you do. And he said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'll come back when the argument is finished. And one of us looked at him and said, we're not arguing, we're talking. Because for us, that was talking. We were just being energetic and uh, passionate about the things that we thought, and we weren't afraid to talk about them and to disagree with them and to have a dialogue and a conversation. Sometimes people will take your demeanor as being argumentative and difficult when actually you might just be passionate. You might just be a person who really strongly believes some things. But learning that disagreement doesn't need to be disrespectful is a really healthy step. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, the Apostle Paul says, Speak the truth in love. And by so doing, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Often we want to try and choose between love or conflict, or love or truth. But love and truth live together. We don't need to be afraid of them. And thirdly, very simply, peacemaking is proactive, whereas peacekeeping is passive. To be a peacemaker is to intentionally and deliberately step into situations in order to bring resolution. Ask any pastor, ask any elder, ask any managing director, ask any manager, ask any person that runs a business. Can you run that business just by being a peacekeeper? Absolutely not. You have to be able to create situations where conflicts can be resolved and you help people talk things through. So, those three tips around peacemaking, I hope, are helpful to you. Let me read to you Romans chapter 12, verse 18, however, as a caveat. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Learn that sometimes you're not going to be able to be at peace with each other. You're going to have to agree to disagree. You're going to have to work out what it means to hold two different opinions and still love each other. That's not unhealthy. Being able to do that, being able to, to live together as a family, as a couple, as a church, as a nation, with more than one idea, is vital, isn't it? Far too often we end up having arguments with people based on us being right and them being wrong. And I'm not always sure that that's the best way for us to proceed in dialogue. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I think it's a beautiful thing that this remarkable title is given to those who seek to be most like Jesus. In Eugene Peterson's version of these Beatitudes. He describes peacemaking in this way. You're blessed 
when you try to make bridges out of pieces of a Roman cross. Think about that image with me for a moment. If you are called to be a peacemaker, you're called to be a bridge that connects people with God, that connects people with each other, that keeps people walking toward one another. What do you do with a bridge? You walk on it. If you want to be a peacekeeper, you don't need to be walked on. If you want to be a peacemaker, you will be. It's part of the territory. Don't complain about it. Don't try to make it different. That's just what happens. To be a peacemaker is to lay down your life and let people walk on it so that they can connect with each other. That's what Jesus did. And it is hard, but it is what we are called to do. Now let me reflect for a few moments with you on the promise, blessed are you, in verse 10 and verse 11, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are people when Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These verses are not about us being blessed when we've behaved badly. They're not about being blessed when we've behaved like numpties when we've trod over other people's feelings and we've hurt them. Instead, they are verses that promise God's grace, God's mercy, and God's compassion when we are persecuted falsely for Christ's sake. When we are accused of things falsely for Christ, God sees, God knows, God understands. And I want to reflect for a moment with you on that in terms of being part of one church around the world. Not just being part of Dundonald Elam or the church in Northern Ireland or the church in the United Kingdom or in Europe, but the church in the world. Do we face persecution here in the UK now for our Christian faith? not in the terms of facing violence, not in terms of facing imprisonment, not in terms of facing our lives being cut short or our families being taken away from us or us being locked in labor camps. Are we reviled as Christians? Yes, sometimes. Are we ridiculed? Yes. To be associated with Jesus Christ is to be associated with the Nazarene and people for 2,000 years have been saying, can anything good come from Nazareth? Do people look at us quizzically when we say that we're Christians? Yes. 
Do they mumble and laugh at us behind our backs? Probably. To be a follower of Jesus Christ in this country in the next 15 or 20 years, I think genuinely, honestly, without being a fear-mongerer, could mean that you won't get promoted. It could mean that um, you have to make choices about what you'll do in certain careers. It could mean that you have to refuse to teach some things if you're a teacher. You have to refuse to follow through on some treatments if you're a doctor or a nurse. You might get laughed at or ridiculed or sidelined by legislation. It strikes me, and I don't want to be offensive, I don't want to be aggressive, and I don't want to be confrontational, but it strikes me that in the United Kingdom, and I'm recognized that this goes around the world, that you are far more likely to be respected for your faith if you're a Muslim than if you're a Christian. If you are a faithful Muslim and you say that you are against abortion or that you have a particular view of sexuality or euthanasia, you will be listened to and not ridiculed. If you have those views as a Christian, it's okay to be laughed at. It's okay to be ridiculed. It's okay to be mocked. It's okay to be told that you are irrelevant or you are old-fashioned. Is that discrimination? Yes, I think it is. Is it something that we should have a view on? Well, I'm a public theologian. I believe it's important to speak out on issues like that. Is there freedom of religion in this country to preach the gospel? Yes, there still is. Is there freedom to stand on a street corner and pronounce Jesus as Lord? Yes, there still is. You can't be arrested for that. You might be arrested for hate speech, but you can defend yourself in a court. You can stand up and say, I'm not ashamed of Christ and I'm not ashamed of the gospel. No one can legislate against your conscience. No one can force you to believe something. No one can tell you that you're not allowed to believe in the virgin birth or the death and the resurrection of Jesus or the power of the cross or the sanctity of life. Nobody can legislate against who we are. They might try to legislate against how we live or what we say, but they can't legislate against who we are. And I look out at people like you, Stuart, or um, like you, Courtney, or, or, or you, Catherine, or, or you, Rebecca, teachers who are, have maybe 30, 40, 50, maybe 60 years teaching experience, because the time you get older, you'll be retiring at about 95. God bless you. <laughs> and I ask myself, what kind of world will you inhabit? I look at Jonathan McCaig, or I look at, at Lois going into nursing, and I ask myself what kind of world you will inhabit. Because long after um, people of my age have stopped nursing, you will still be doing it. And you know what? To those of you that are under 25, under 30, entering into careers, there's something that you need to decide that no one else can decide for you. What are going to be the core values at the center of your career? What fundamental convictions are going to shape the way you live, the way you perform. Whatever it is that you do, wherever you are, I think I have a responsibility as a pastor coming toward 50 to help those that are under 30 to think about how they can live faithfully for Jesus for 50, 60, or 70 years. To those of us that are in our 50s and in our 60s, what core convictions are you going to hold on to? Are you going to cave in when pressure mounts for us to be faithful to Jesus? Or will you stand firm? 
I don't mean will you get aggressive. I don't mean will you shout. I don't mean will you yell. I don't mean will you put your fists up ready to fight our culture. I mean will you be a peacemaker. But will you be grounded in the gospel and grounded in the truth of who Jesus Christ is and committed to living for him? I'd love to tell you that when you do that, God will just bless everything you do. Nobody's going to challenge you. Nobody's going to say anything negative about you. Nobody's going to laugh at you. Nobody's going to do any of that. And I could fill our church several times over by preaching that kind of message, but it's not true. If you want to stand for Jesus, then you are going to be laughed at. You are going to be ridiculed. You're going to be mocked. You're going to be marginalized, and you're going to be sidelined. You're going to be misunderstood. That's part of the territory. But more important than that, and I genuinely mean more important than that, is God sees. And we are not the first generation that will have gone through this, nor will we be the last. Ours is the kingdom of heaven. That's the promise. Ours is a kingdom that will never pass away. Ours is a kingdom that will last forever. Ours is the privilege of standing by Christ. Ours is the honor to honor the one who died for us. And ours is a great reward, according to verse 12. Zechariah the prophet was butchered behind the altar in the temple. Men and women of God have always been attacked and ridiculed and laughed at for their faith. The famous early Christian martyr Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, in his 90s, late 80s and early 90s, was asked to recant and turn away from Jesus. And he said, as they were about to throw him into a fire, all my life he has been faithful to me. How now could I be anything but faithful to him? And jumped into the fire of his own account. One of the great famous English reformers of the 15th and 16th century recanted his faith because he was afraid of dying by signing a declaration and then realized that he had done the wrong thing. And when they took him to the stake to burn him, he said, I have offended God with my right hand. And therefore, I will put my right hand first into the fire. He knew that his fate was sealed, but he was willing to stand for Christ. There's a young lady in the early church called Perpetua who was denied access to her daughter because of her faith in Jesus Christ and forced to watch her daughter starve because they wouldn't let her feed her. And yet, she found courage and grace to remain faithful. Persecution of that nature is more prevalent now, sisters and brothers, than it has ever been at any other point in church history. There are more Christians being persecuted for their faith now around the world than there have ever been. Men and women just like you, just like me, the only difference is they have to live in prisons or in shipping containers, living on bread and water. And the only difference is they were born in a different country to you. They were born in a different country to me. They're not part of a different church. They're not part of a different stream. They're part of this stream, the church of Jesus Christ. There is only one church, and it is a persecuted church, and you are part of it, 
and so am I. And Jesus said that we were to remember that we were one body. And the Apostle Paul said, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Over the years, I have been blessed and privileged to be involved with organizations that have helped persecuted Christians. I have faced moments in my life where I have had to decide at the end of a gun whether I will deny Jesus Christ or not. I pray you're never in that position. I pray you never have to make that decision and that you never have to feel the anxiety and the faith that rises at the same time. I pray that God will give you grace never to face that type of treatment. But sisters and brothers, I want to remind you of something, not as a, an illustration at the end of a sermon, but as a point that is deeply important. Our sisters and brothers have their lives cut short for Jesus. Our sisters and brothers are imprisoned. Our sisters and brothers are denied access to basic human rights for the simple reason that they are followers of Jesus Christ, and we are called to remember them. A few years ago, I was in the Middle East, privileged to visit families that had escaped from um, Islamist hell territories into the safety of the relative safety of northern Syria. I met one family. The man was a dentist, the woman was an architect. They were living in a garage with four children. They had left everything because Islamist terrorists were coming to kill them. A Muslim neighbor phoned them and gave them warning that they had to get out. And as they came out of their home, they saw the bodies of relatives and friends strewn across the street. Now, I'm not gonna make a judgment on what I'm about to say to you but I ask you to think about the strength of this family. The little boy in the family, who was about eight, um, tried to get into the car, and there was an old Bible that had been passed down for 300 or 200 years um, from one generation to another. The father took the Bible out and hid it in the ground in their home with all the other stuff that they'd hidden from the church where he had been involved because they promised that one day they would go back and rebuild that church. As they buried that Bible, the eight-year-old boy said, Daddy, why don't you leave me? Because the Bible is more important. Daddy, why don't you leave me? Now, of course, he didn't do that. But something in that family clicked at a level of understanding that most of us fail to grasp. That the faith that kept them together, that held them together, was of the most profound and deep influence. And they determined, they said to me, we have lost everything, but as soon as we can, we will go back and we will dig up that Bible and we'll dig up the things that we've hidden 
And it doesn't matter if we've got nothing, we will rebuild the community that God has called us to build because we are God's people first and foremost. It was still a dangerous area for them to live in. It was a dangerous area for me to be in. But they had crosses hanging from their car windscreens. They had made crosses out of fairy lights. I went to a refugee camp where they were literally living in containers, shipping containers. And they'd made crosses out of fairy lights to put on the outside of their shipping containers. They plastered pages from the Bible on their doors. Many of them had crosses tattooed between their thumb and their finger. And at one point I said to them, do you not think that you should take the cross down? God knows that you love him. And every one of them, when I asked that question, their response was, we want the world to know that we love him. When those people are persecuted, when those people are imprisoned, when those people are locked up, when those people face the restrictions that they face, they are never asked first, never, never asked first, are you Baptist, Orthodox, or Pentecostal? No one says, are you an evangelical or a liberal? They never say to them, what way do you take communion? Because if you take communion from a common cup, we'll kill you. But if you don't, we won't. They're never asked what denomination they're from. They're never asked what stream they're in. They're never asked how they worship. They're never asked how they give. They're never asked any of that. The only thing that matters is that they belong to Jesus. And in this country of ours, in the end, that is what defines a Christian. Not what denomination we are from. Not what stream we are from. Not what way we do communion. Not how we read the Bible. Not how we worship. And not how we gather. Whether or not we are faithful to Christ. And I have learned something from the persecuted church. That the West and people in Northern Ireland and in the United Kingdom are very, very prone to forget. Those things that we think give us priority and make us better Christians than other people, in the end, really don't. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In the end, I don't want you to become part of Dundonald Elam in order to be faithful to Elam? Or to be faithful to me? Or to be faithful to this platform? Or to be faithful to this congregation? I want you to be part of this church so that together we can be faithful to Jesus. That we as a community will put him first everywhere, at all times, and in every decision. And I pray that God will give us the grace to do that. North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Eritrea, Sudan, Yemen, Iran, India. Ten countries where to be a Christian is to risk your life. Syria, Nigeria, Saudi Arabia, the Maldives, Iraq, Egypt, Algeria, Uzbekistan, Myanmar, Laos, Vietnam, 
Turkmenistan, China, Mauritania, the Central African Republic, Morocco, Qatar, Burkina Faso, Mali, Sri Lanka, Tajikistan, Nepal, Jordan, Tunisia, Kazakhstan, Turkey, Brunei, Bangladesh, Ethiopia, Malaysia, Colombia, Oman, Kuwait. Countries where to be a Christian can get you in prison. And you can spend your life there. Kenya, Bhutan, the Russian Federation, the United Arab Emirates, Cameroon, Indonesia, and Niger. Countries where to follow Jesus Christ means that you're almost certain not to be given any prominent roles in society or in your professions. This morning, as our service draws to an end, I ask you to join with me in praying for the persecuted church.